Brothers and sisters, this morning, the word of God is coming to us from Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15. So we started last week in Romans 14 verse 1. So let's start today, Romans chapter 14 verse 13, and let's read to Romans chapter 15 verse 13. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Indeed, everything is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come up, even he who arises 
to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank you again that you have given us your word. We thank you that you speak to us from your word and that it is your word that you use as the instrument for our sanctification and for our growth and godliness. Lord, it is your word that you use for the strengthening of your people and for the building up of your church. Lord, we are completely dependent upon you for your word. Speak to us, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that your people may be equipped, that your church may be built up in love to the glory of Christ. Lord, help me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is, a, again, a privilege and a joy that I can share with you the Word of God. And we are continuing from last week our study and look at the question of conscience, Christians, and the church. And again, we're returning to Romans chapter 14. In our last study, we saw in the beginning part of chapter 14 how this soaring theme of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, is the, the theme of Romans and is the, the vehicle producing unity within this Roman church between age-old enemies of Jews and Gentiles. And we had we saw last week how this glorious reality of justification by faith has produced this unity within the church between people who are so vastly different in so many respects, language and culture and religious background in so many other ways. And how, as well, justification by faith produced the potential for a disastrous split in the Roman church, and in fact, in every church. Because there arose out of this church two groups of people. One group understood where they stood with respect to the ceremonial law. They recognized that justifi justification by faith had freed them from any obligation to the ceremonial law. Paul calls these the strong in faith. And they knew that they were free in their conscience with regards to questions of meat and questions of special religious days or questions of drinking wine. On the other hand, there was another group of Christians who had not yet reached that level of conviction with regards to their freedoms on the basis of justification by faith. So Paul calls these the weak in faith. 
Their conscience was still warning them against eating meat and, and not observing certain days. And the differences in the conscience convictions between these two groups was resulting in conflict. And Paul addressed that conflict last week in Romans chapter 14, verse 1 to 12, where he focused mostly on the attitude that we have as we approach conscience controversies. And now today, in Romans chapter 14, verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Paul begins to identify and instruct on specific actions that these Christians should take as they want to live out their conscience convictions in the day-to-day life of the church. And so we are here on this journey that Paul is taking us on, uh, linking what we learned last week about our attitudes to what we will learn this week about our actions in conscience controversies within the church. So may God help us to understand what are our attitudes and what are our actions that he wants from us. Before we begin this journey, it's helpful to step back and to consider this section of Romans within the broader context. As we step back and we look at the whole book of Romans, we see that in addition to justification by faith, there's another parallel thought that's woven throughout this epistle. It's, it's a parallel song, if you like, this sonorous harmony that beautifully beco- echoes into the background and blends with the soaring melody that Paul is writing here about justification by faith. It is this uh, harmony that brings out the beauty of the melody of justification by faith. And, and what is this parallel theme? We can see it is in one word. Love. The theme of love appears beginning in Romans chapter 5, where we see that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And it continues in in chapter 5 verse 8, where we see that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it rises again in chapter 8 verse 35, where Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then the answer comes in this resounding crescendo in chapter 8, verse 37 to 39, where Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 12 and chapter 13, the background harmony of love comes into the forefront as Paul walks us through the practical outworking of justification by faith. In chapter 12, he says, in response to being justified by faith and being made one in Christ, let love be genuine. Chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Verse 18, live peaceably with one another. 
chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Can you see how these verses are tracing this this thread throughout the book of Romans? A, A thread that is born out of God's saving love for his people. It is this, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, under the penalty of death and the sentence of God because of his holy wrath against sin, Christ died for us. He bore the wrath of, of a holy God for our sin. And in his death, satisfied the justice of God, becoming a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith and has imputed to us his righteousness. All of the condemnation and wrath that we deserve has been placed on Christ. And all the blessings and heavenly merits and approvals of Christ have been given to us, to us who belong to his Son. And so now, for us who have been justified by faith and who have received such riches of love from God, what is God calling us to do is to love, to respond with the love that we have received in Christ by loving others who also have been justified by faith like us and have been united together with us in the body of Christ within the church. And so love becomes the eternal, the eternal and unshakable reality of the Christian. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of God for his redeemed children remains steadfast. And it is the, the, the heavenly blood, the, the life blood of unity within the body of Christ. The love that has flowed to us from God through our union with Christ and then flows from us to one another. It is rooted in the gospel. It comes from being united together in justification by faith. And then it is bears fruit in practical love that is lived out in day to day in the body of believers. I hope that you can see this theme coming out in the book of Romans. These two parallel truths, justification by faith, producing love from God and for others in God. And then that brings us to where we are in chapter 14, where Paul takes this theme of love that he has been unfolding and developing for 14 chapters. And then he applies it directly to the, uh, to the, to the divisions, to the disagreements, to the disunity that has been brewing in the Roman church. In a sense, these chapters 14 and 15 are, are really the high point of the book of Romans. It's what Paul has been building up to all along, the place where the doctrine of justification by faith, producing unity between Jew and Gentile, gets practical. This is where the rubber of the gospel meets the road of real problems occurring between very different people in the church who have different conscience convictions 
on what is pleasing to God. This is where the rubber of the gospel meets the road of differences and divisions in our church. The instruction that Paul is giving to the Romans here are the same instructions that God is giving to us. And so let us listen to the word of God. And we can, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of instructions, but we can categorize them into three main actions in the end part of chapter 14, all of which are rooted in this overarching responsibility to walk in love. So let's begin. The first action Paul gives is in verse 13 to 15, and I've categorized it, judge whether you are walking in love. Judge whether you are walking in love. Let's look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And here Paul is restating a principle. He's reviewing. When you're, I, I give a lecture, three-hour lecture, halfway through, I need to stop and get back to where I was, otherwise we're going to lose our place. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding us of what he has already said we should be doing when it comes to conscience convictions. In verse 4, in verse 10, in verse 12, Paul already said that we should not pass judgment on one another because of differences that we have in our convictions over secondary things. And we saw from last week that this is rooted in the fact that our conscience is a warning system for us that God has given us. It's like rumble strips in the road. It warns us when we're moving off of the right path and we're, we're veering into the wrong path. But not every Christian has their rumble strips located in the same place, we said. Some have more liberty on one issue. Others have less. And the temptation that we have is to despise those with a stricter conscience than us for their lack of freedom, all oh, those legalists, or to pass judgment on those with a looser, a looser conscience than us because of their laxity. I can't believe they do that, and they call themselves Christians. And so Paul told us in 4 and 10 and 12, and, and now in verse 13, the strong must not despise the weaker conscience brothers, and the weak must not judge the stronger conscience brothers. Rather, each one must be careful to obey his own conscience. And, and we saw last week these two critical principles of conscience. And they're ranked in order. Principle number two is that we need to obey our conscience. And principle number three, excuse me, principle number one, principle number one, the topmost principle of all, is that only God is the Lord of conscience. So we not uh, we shall not judge others for their conscience position. And at the same time, we listen to our conscience and we're willing to recalibrate our conscience, for God to recalibrate our conscience by his word. But Paul doesn't leave his instructions here. He moves from here and he says in the second part of verse 13, but rather... Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul is not just calling for a ceasefire. Don't judge. 
but he he's calling for harmony between these two groups. And he says, don't judge, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block. And, and the word decide that he uses here in the middle of verse 13 is the same word, the same Greek word as judge in the first part of the verse. So essentially, Paul is saying, stop judging others and start judging yourself. And what are we supposed to judge ourselves on? Never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And a stumbling block here is is that which causes a brother to fall, that which causes someone else's ruin spiritually. A hindrance is an impediment to their progress in the way. Very similar. And the point that Paul is making is this. Our use or non-use of spiritual freedom in secondary matters that's based on our conscience convictions must not cause our brother to stumble and to sin. And this command is given both to the weak and to the strong. But notice how the strong have additional responsibility placed upon them. We all have responsibilities, but the strong have a greater responsibility to bear with the weak. That's what Romans 15.1 says, right? You who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And an obvious reason that the strong have more responsibility is because they have more options. A strong, a strong conscience brother can decide, abstain, partake, eat, don't eat. But the weaker conscience brother has only one choice, abstain. He, he has no choice but to not eat. And so because the stronger conscience brothers have extra freedoms, Paul places extra responsibilities on them to use their gifts, the gift of freedom, in a manner that is building up to the other brothers. So if we paraphrase verse 13, Paul is saying, don't judge others. Judge how you affect others. And to dispel any confusion, he provides clarification on, on the theological issue at hand in verse 14. Look at 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul recognizes that, in principle, the strong conscience brothers are right. We indeed are free from observing ceremonial prohibitions in the law. The ceremonial requirements of the law have been fully realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Nothing entering a person can make him unclean or make uh, her unclean. It is only what comes out of a person. And yet Paul says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So the, the weaker brother whose conscience is still not properly calibrated in these secondary matters, here's warning about eating meat or about not observing special days. Everything is clean to the Christian, but not everything is clean to every Christian. The weak conscience brother is still bound by his conscience. And according to conscience principle number two, must obey his conscience. And for that brother or for that sister, disregarding the conscience on this issue would be sin, even though 
the issue itself is not a sin. And then, so what, what would happen then if a stronger conscience Christian comes and begins flaunting his freedoms towards that weaker brother or, or putting pressure on that brother? Come on, man, lighten up, get a grip. Get, don't you know, read Mark chapter, read the Gospels. Jesus declared everything free, clean. But what would happen if that stronger Christian despised and pressured the weaker one? And, and wanted the, the weaker brother to adapt his, his scruples to the stronger brother's convictions. That, that would be a stumbling block to the weaker brother. That would trip him up. That was that would cause him to stumble. That would make him violate his conscience. Or it would grieve him in a way that would not be loving. And so Paul's instruction to the weak, to the stronger brother here is to forego what he otherwise would be free to do if that is what is needed to keep the weak conscience brother from stumbling. And really, this is an application of what Paul said in verse 7 and 8. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So it's not a question of what I want or what I'm free to do, but it's a question of living for Christ. And the strongest one is the one who has surrendered all of his prerogatives and all of his rights to Christ, and can partake or abstain, yield or give up, whatever is necessary to build up the body of Christ. And my dear brothers and sisters, we would do well here to pause for self-examination. How am I judging? Am I judging others? Or am I judging myself for the effect my actions have on others? Am I examining seriously my actions on these secondary issues and how they affect my brother, either for their good or for their ill? Or am I living for myself? William Barclay said that it is a Christian duty to think of everything not as it affects ourselves only, but also as it affects others. And I would add to that, most of all, as it affects our life in the body of Christ. And the motivation for this comes in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. To be grieved is to be put into distress by the actions of the strong to the point where it causes spiritual harm. To cause that kind of harm by lovelessly exercising personal freedom violates the second greatest commandment, to love our brother as ourself. It violates the law of love. Verse 15 continues, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The, the scripture uses a strong word here. Destroy. And again in verse 20. And this is not suggesting that our actions can cause our, our brother to lose their salvation or, or to forfeit their soul. But it is emphasizing the destructive nature of sin. Sin destroys what God is doing in our brother or our sister's life. Sin causes spiritual damage to our brother and to his relationship with God. And so we need to very seriously consider how our actions 
may be causing a brother or sister to sin. And to drive the point home, Paul reminds us of the value of that sister or brother, saying that they are one for whom Christ died. It has taken nothing less than the blood of God's own son to cleanse that brother, that sister for whom Christ died. That one is Christ's precious sheep. And will you value your freedom, O strong conscience Christian, more than the one for whom Christ died? Are you unwilling to give up a questionable practice in love? That you are, you are, un, that you are unwilling, that, that you are willing to harm the spiritual life of one of Christ's blood-bought people? That would be using your freedom for evil, not for good. God has given us freedom in these secondary matters for good, so that we can serve him and that we can worship him with, with a free conscience, which is a blessing before God. And so Paul urges these strong conscience brothers who are walking in a manner violating the law of love in verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. By, by your unloving use of spiritual liberties, you're abusing the good thing God has given you in your free conscience. And you're causing that good thing to be an instrument of evil as you cause spiritual damage to a weaker brother. This is failing to walk in love. And truly, walking is in love is the sum and total of, of Paul's entire argument on conscience. In these conscience controversies, this is the solution that Paul gives. Walk in love. And in truth, conscience controversies are, are not really conscience controversies at all. But love issues, it's not an issue of a difference of conscience, but at its core, it's a difference, it's an issue of lack of love. So may God help us not to be ones who are strong in love, excuse me, strong in conscience, but weak in love. May God help us to be ones who are strong in love, even as we live out of the free conscience that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So that's the first category of, of actions Paul gives. Judge whether you are walking in love. And the second category of actions is in verse 17 and 18. And I titled this category, Prioritize Kingdom Priorities. Prioritize Kingdom Priorities. Not only does love demand the, the limiting of our freedoms for the weak. But the kingdom of God is about that. Look at verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So here Paul actually uh, broadens the scope of his argument. Before he was talking about what you do and how it impacts an individual Christian. But now he says, okay, now look at this from the point of view of the kingdom of God. Look at this not just from one Christian and, uh, to another, but consider what you are doing and how it relates to the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is expressed in the life of the local church. I mean, of course, all of creation is the kingdom of God, right? Where God rules as king. He is the creator of all things. But John Murray says here that the kingdom of God Paul has in view 
is especially the spiritual realm in which believers belong. It, it is the realm where God's kingship is acknowledged by those who seek to do his will and promote his concerns. That, that's what Paul is uh, guiding us to, to, to consider. And then what concerns is what concern does God have in his kingdom? Paul says, it's not about eating and drinking. That's not what the kingdom of God's about. It's not about other secondary matters like media choice or, or education options or wine drinking or clothing choices or medical choices or even whether or not we will put on a face mask. As important as those issues may be, that's not what God prioritizes in his kingdom. What does God prioritize? Look at verse 17 again. The end. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is about not getting my way, not getting your way, but God getting his way. And his way is for believers to pursue righteousness, right actions in the power of the Holy Spirit, a righteousness that is rooted in the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us. And then it is promoted in the lives of believers as we do right deeds to one another, living in love. And then it is propagated to the world as we evangelize the lost with the gospel. This is the priority that God has for his kingdom. And what is the result of pursuing these priorities? Paul says, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Prioritizing kingdom priorities is the way we serve our king. It is the way we find joy, true joy, in the Holy Spirit. It is what pleases God. And that's why Paul says in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. This is the, this is the, the living out of our faith that is acceptable to God. Pursuing righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And curiously, look at how Paul adds, approved by men. How much insult and ridicule from the world has the Church of Christ endured because of the unloving conduct of its members? There are jokes about the proclivities of Christians to divide over mundane issues. My brothers, this should not be. Even now, as we see the, the status of Christianity in our culture dropping by the wayside, even now as our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians and at best ambivalent to the church, now this is the time all the more to demonstrate righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit through unity among brothers in the church of God. Division on core gospel issues is unavoidable. But on secondary matters, Paul says, pursue righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. The church, rather than being characterized as a community of dividers, should be characterized as a community of love, a community where harmony in the gospel and the love of Christ flowing to and from one another is a rebuke against the adversaries of the Lord. They look at us and they 
cannot see anything to accuse us against. And this is the priority that God has for his church. This is a good place to test our own priorities. Do they line up with God's priorities? Are your convictions rooted in this priority? Or are your convictions rooted in your own priorities? Are you elevating your own preferences, the preferences of your conscience, above doing righteous acts to brothers and sisters in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are kingdom priorities being practiced at Providence Baptist Church? Do we see righteous acts and genuine peace and real joy being accomplished by the people of God here? And the answer is, praise the Lord. We do. We are seeing you prioritize these things. Prioritizing prayer. Prioritizing serving one another. Ministering to one another. Meeting the needs of one another. Calling one another. Preparing meals for one another. Encouraging one another. Supporting one another. Even under uh, uh, great inconvenience, coming and gathering together to edify and encourage and exhort and to celebrate the Lord's table with one another. I praise God for you, my dear brothers and sisters, because he is producing fruit in you that is resulting in joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And all of it to the praise and to the glory of God. That is the priority that Paul urged the Roman church to pursue. Prioritize kingdom priorities. And then the third category of actions, verse 19, pursue mutual upbuilding. Look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And again, this instruction is, is primarily aimed at the, the strong conscience Christians. The word pursue is it's also a very active word. It, it, it has the idea of a hunter seeking after a prey. It's not a passive just kind of looking around, but it's a active, you know, being on the lookout. So the sense here is, is hunt down, be on the lookout for ways to make peace and, and to, to, to be upbuilding the church of God. The church is more important than our freedom. Focus our energy, focus your energy and attention not, not on the things that I'm losing, the things that are being taken away from me, the things that I have to give up, but on what builds up the body. Be the kind of person that asks, what can I do to make this assembly stronger? How can I promote the work of God in, in this brother or in this sister? What way can I deprive myself for the benefit of that person? What can I do to mutually build up the body of Christ out of love? And Paul juxtaposes this attitude of building up against verse 20, where he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So here we see these two opposite attitudes, right? The attitude of pursuing what makes for peace and upbuilding, and the opposite attitude of lovelessly brandishing liberty 
for the dis- unto the destruction of what God is building. So Paul is saying to the strong conscience Christians, take heed. Take heed, strong conscience Christians, that you are not destroying the work of God, that the work that God is doing in your younger brother or in your younger, uh, weaker sister as you exercise your freedoms. It would be better to not exercise those freedoms at all than to cause your brother to stumble. And that's what he says in verse 21. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And and Paul is beginning to sound a little bit repetitive. He said that already. But the repetition is intended to put an exclamation point on God's command. If the exercise of your freedoms causes a younger brother to stumble in any way, you are not walking in love. At the same time that Christ is building his church, and we like to say that again and again, right? Christ is building his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Are we undoing what Christ is building by failing to walk in love towards one another? And so Paul concludes with his admonition to the strong in verse 22. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul's exhortation to the strong is this. God has blessed you with freedoms on secondary matters. This this clear conscience that you enjoy, it is a great blessing from God. But don't flaunt it. Don't abuse your conscience on these secondary matters in a way that Your freedom is an occasion for the undoing, spiritual ill of your brother in Christ. Be willing to limit or even give up the freedoms that you have for your brother's good. Prioritize what God cares about, righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. And then Paul addresses the weak in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And Paul has an exhortation to the weak. And it is this. Listen to your conscience. Don't sin against your conscience. Follow your conscience consistently before the Lord. But always remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your conscience. Do not treat your own conscience convictions to be so sacrosanct that you are unwilling for Christ to come in and recalibrate them by his word. In your lack of freedom, do not sin against your brother by violating your conscience. Don't sin against your own conscience by violating your conscience and don't sin against your brother as uh, by drawing back from the people of God. The, the, the strong need to be careful that their use of liberty doesn't cause the weak to stumble. And the weak need to be careful that their lack of liberty doesn't cause them to draw back, depriving the strong of the means of grace that God has made those weak brothers to be within the body. Brothers and sisters, we have obligations to one another because God has put us together into the body of of his son. God is sovereign over where we are. 
God is sovereign over who is in this assembly. God is sovereign over the circumstances in which we find ourselves. God is sovereign over the provincial mandates and all the other things that we are going through. Why do you think these things have come about? I don't know all the reasons, but I know one reason for sure. It is so that his glory may be revealed as the church of Christ responds with the love of Christ to one another. And also it is so that your conscience can be brought better into line with the word of God. That is a part of our sanctification, that we are becoming more and more attuned to the thing that God wants us to be attuned for, more and more pursuing the things that God wants us to be pursuing, and less and less concerned with the things that, though may be important, are not the most important. So then how how does this relate to what we we have find ourselves now in, in Providence Baptist Church. How, how do we take these truths from the Word of God and apply them to what the conscience controversies are that we're facing now? In the midst of a COVID-19 lockdown. I'm sure that you'll agree. This is a time of much controversy. It's a time where we're appealing to conscience here, appealing to conscience there, one side, other side. We don't, we get confused at best, and at worst, we, we splinter the body of Christ. How does God want us to respond? I want to consider application of this text into one specific area, and this is uh, the area of wearing face masks. How does the principles from Romans chapter 14 apply in that question. In the issue of face masks, it would be helpful to think about well, who are the weak and who are the strong. Which side is, is characteristic of the weak? Which side is characteristic of the strong? In one sense, those who object to wearing face masks are like the weak. They're like the ones that say, I don't have freedom in this area. I don't have freedom in my conscience to wear a mask. It violates my conscience, and so I'm not going to wear one to honor God. And on the other hand, those who do not object to wearing a conscience will say, I do have freedom in this area. I am free. My conscience is free. So I can wear a mask. I cannot wear a mask for the glory of God. So then from that viewpoint... The weak should honor God by consistently not wearing a face mask. If that, what is, if that is what your conscience warns you against, then you need to be consistent in obeying the warning of your conscience. And then the strong should not insist on the weak wearing a mask because that would cause them to stumble. And both should welcome one another because that is the attitude of love. And I think that this is exactly how most of us were living all through the summer in the church. We had people who came and and wore masks. We had people who came and, and didn't wear masks. The leaders, we would wear masks during the Lord's table out of consideration for others. And so I think that the church was addressing that issue of masks in a way that is aligned with 
Romans chapter 14. But then something changed. In November, the B.C. government mandated that masks be worn in all buildings, public buildings. And now, in order for us to gather together in our support groups for edification and encouragement, the government is saying that you must wear masks. Well, what does that mean then for those whose consciences warn them against wearing a mask? Well, they have to choose. Either they participate without wearing a mask, or they absent themselves from the assembling of God's people. But the important thing to notice is that the conscience issue has now changed. The conscience issue is now not just about masks, but about submission to governing authorities. And with that, the conscience categories, weak and strong, have changed. The strong now, if you can follow my argument, are the ones that say, well, my conscience is free. I can defy the government in this area of wearing masks because I think that this is an issue that is uh, uh, to honor God in, and I am free to not obey the government in this area. But the weak one would say, I don't have the freedom to to defy the government. Gathering, and moreover, gathering with those who are defying the government implicates me in their defiance, and that violates my conscience. And so if you can imagine these conscience categories, the ones about masks and the ones about defiance to the governing authorities are now completely clashing against each other and then we are left with a dilemma. There's no way forward if you think about it. How can we move forward in a way that promotes unity and pursues righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? How can we in this kind of circumstance accomplish the priorities that God would have us to accomplish? This was the dilemma that the elders had to wrestle with for a long time and, and prayer and, and, and trusting in the Lord. And we have come to the conclusion before God that he would have us to enforce, enforce mask mandates. And because of that, grieves me to say that there have been some in our body who have absented themselves from the Lord's Day Assembly, and from Bible studies, and from other activities when the people of God gather for edification in the gospel. And my great fear, well, I should say the opposite way, my great prayer is that this will give us an opportunity to grow stronger in our love for one another. But my great fear is that the enemy would want us to grow weaker in our love for one another. So now I cannot compel the consciences of you, my dear brothers and sisters. Pastor John and I cannot bind our position of conscience onto you. Only the Lord Jesus is the Lord of the conscience. Only the Lord Jesus can change the warning system of your conscience. But as your shepherds who love you, who care for your soul, and who will give an account to God for how we have shepherded you, we beseech you in love to reevaluate your understanding of conscience and reevaluate your conscience position in light of what God has given us here in this text. 
And I, I wanted to bring a handful of, of direct applications. And please know that these are applications that are born out of love, out of a desire for us to walk in love for one another and with one another to the praise and glory of God. The first application. Indifferent matters cease to be indifferent when ruled upon by a higher authority. It makes sense. The Puritan William Perkins, in addressing the freedom of conscience, says, and I'm going to quote him, wholesome laws of men made of things indifferent, that is, not forbidden or commanded in the scriptures, yet bind the conscience by virtue of the general commandment of God who, who ordains the magistrate's authority. So as whoever shall wittingly and willingly with a disloyal mind either break or omit such laws is guilty of sin before God. By mandating masks, the magistrate has made mask wearing no longer a disputable matter where brothers and sisters can have different convictions and, and disagree. Rather, it has made mask wearing a question of submission to governing authorities. And that brings the second application. Submission to authorities is commanded by God unless it violates his moral law. Christians are not free to disobey authorities merely on the basis of their conscience merely on the basis of their conscience. Conscience is not an excuse to disobey governing authorities. When authorities rule on a disputable matter, that changes the requirements of our conscience. And so now our objection must be on the basis of God's moral law. God is the highest authority and he compels our conscience to submit to those authorities he's given to us unless that submission violates the moral law of God. And God has given each one, uh, each individual Christian, the prerogative to make that decision. And so I cannot make that decision for you. Romans 14, 12, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the Christian must decide before God, what moral law is the magistrate requiring me to violate in this mask mandate? And take note, each one gives an account of himself to God. We don't give an account for the magistrate, for government overreach, for other things, but our own obedience to the will of God. This is very important. Conscience is not an objection. It's not a legitimate objection to disobedience to governing authorities unless it is in accord with God's moral law. Third, Less clear laws must yield to more clear laws. This is the, the rule of faith. Scripture has many laws. They're embodied in the Ten Commandments. Moreover, they're embodied in the law of love. Love God and love our neighbor. So more clear laws must take precedence over laws that are not as clear. One thing that is not extremely clear in the Scripture is whether it is a sin to put a piece of fabric over our face only for a few moments when we come into or leave a building. The scripture doesn't forbid that. But the scripture does forbid 
forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews chapter 10. It does forbid lack of submission to authorities, Romans chapter 13, in the government and in the church, Hebrews chapter 13. It does forbid that we prefer personal liberties to corporate duties in the life of the body. That's the point of this chapter, Romans 14. And so we must not violate the clear commands when we follow our conscience in areas that are less clear. That is making an idol of our conscience. Instead, God is calling us to recalibrate our conscience, to align it with the clearer commands of Scripture. Fourth application, building up the body of Christ takes precedence over personal opinions. Walking in love, according to Romans 14, if we're going to boil it down, it boils down to a willingness to surrender personal liberties in order to promote unity and build up the body of Christ. It's not for me, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. We all hold various convictions, but we need to rank these convictions in our heart. And our highest conviction must be to honor God. And our second highest conviction must be to promote love and harmony of the gospel among the people of God. And then all the other lesser convictions need to yield to those overarching convictions. And the, the a very interesting historical anecdote is helpful to understand this, uh, this point. And this is the vestments controversy. Vestments are... Um, robes, clerical uh, robes that the priests, excuse me, the bishops, the bishops would wear uh, when they were preaching. And this is in 16th century England. Okay, so the king of England, King Edward, had uh, required priests, sorry, they're called bishops. Um, I'm reading an old book and it calls them priests. The, the, the bishops of England to wear these special robes, these vestments, as they were preaching. And some uh, some of these bishops, including John Hooper, objected to the intrusion on the church and onto the ministers by the king. He said, essentially, the king doesn't have any authority to, uh, to, to ordain a particular matter within the church. And Hooper saw it as, as inventing new ways of worship. But then other bishops, like Nicholas Ridley, countered that vestments, these whatever you wear when you preach, are matters that are indifferent. And there's nothing indecent about them. And the king has ruled in this matter of indifference, this disputable matter, and the king has authority, and so we should be submissive to the king. And the debate became uh, became very heated between Hooper and Ridley and between the king and, and the ruling bishops and the dissenting bishops. And it got to the point where the King Edward had to threaten to remove Hooper, and he, he threatened to remove the other dissenting bishops unless they submitted to wearing vestments. And so Hooper, as a, as a last-ditch effort, wrote a letter to Heinrich Bullinger. Heinrich Bullinger, at that point Martin Luther had died, uh, uh, John Calvin had died, and he was the grand old man of the Reformation, uh, Reformation theology. And he had a tremendous influence in the church in England. And he was also a deep personal friend of Hooper. And Hooper thought, for sure, this reformed uh, stalwart is going to back me with respect to uh, not having to wear vestments in the church. But Hooper uh, was chagrined to see that Bullinger wrote 
in a letter, if edifying the church is the chief thing to be regarded in this matter, we shall do the church a greater injury by deserting it than by wearing vestments. In other words, Bullinger urged Hooper, your convictions on vestments are fine, and the king probably shouldn't be so intrusive. But nonetheless, your highest conviction must be edification of the body. And Bullinger prevailed on Hooper, and eventually Hooper, uh, uh, he relented, and he preached in clerical vestments in his church, and he even preached in clerical vestments before the king. And in the end, the end of the story is that Hooper and the person on the other side, Bishop Ridley, were both burned at the stake by Mary Tudor having run their race in faithfulness. So ultimately, our priority must be honor God, promote unity in the church. Because the kingdom of God is not about masks, but about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that God is pleased in. So again, <clears throat> again, I ask you this same question I asked last week. Are your convictions drawing you to press more into Christ, more into his word, more into his people? Or are your convictions drawing you to withdraw? Are your convictions drawing you closer to your brothers and sisters? Are, are, is this bond of love that's born out of justification by faith growing in your heart and growing in your fellowship with the fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, even those who have a different view than you? Or is your position pushing you further away? To all of us, God is telling us this. Walk in love. That's the end of the law, my dear brothers. And the ultimate example of the one who walks in love is our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point of, of chapter 15. After concluding this, this passage, I think Paul recognizes that we've looked at ourselves and we've looked at our differences and we've looked at our convictions for long enough. Let us look at Christ. Let us consider the example of Christ. Let's see how Christ lived, and then let's live like him. Chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ bore the reproach for our sin. In chapter 15, verse 8, Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcision. He he gave up every privilege. He gave up every liberty that he had in heaven, in glory. And he became a servant to the most meticulous, the most law-keeping culture in the world. And he fulfilled all those ceremonial laws. And he fulfilled all the moral laws, all the requirements of God, in order that, verse 8 says, the Gentiles even you and I might glorify God for his mercy. 
And that is the path that Christ has set down for us. It is the path of self-denial, of giving up our liberties and giving up our freedoms. Liberty to do this, liberty to not do this. Of course, not throwing out the law of God, but fulfilling the law of God by using our liberties to do or not to do out of love for one another. Ultimately, to the glory and praise of God. And so with Christ as this example, my brothers, please join me in making Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 7, your prayer. And may you examine your heart before God as we pray this together. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. My dear brothers, COVID-19 and government overreach and eroding religious liberties are no threat to the church of Christ. This reminds me of, of Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's glorious hymn. And, and there's a, an alternative version that goes like this. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foes who fear it. For God himself fights by our side with weapons of the spirit. Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though life be wrenched away, they cannot win the day. Thy kingdom is forever. My brothers and sisters, the threat that imperils the church of Christ is not losing anything, but it is losing love for one another in Christ Jesus. And so I thank God for COVID-19 because it has stretched the bonds of unity in this church. It has revealed ways in which we have been living for self and not for Christ. It has revealed areas in my own heart where my love for my brother was weak, where I, I was living for my own kingdom and not seeking the priorities of God's kingdom. Has this time exposed something similar in your own heart? Will you submit your heart and your convictions to the scrutiny of the word of God? The past months have revealed places where love and unity in this body are, are lacking. And praise the Lord, my dear brothers, that the blood of Jesus Christ covers over a multitude of sins. That the gospel has love aplenty to reconcile people who have very different conscious convictions. If we will only submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ as he leads us in his word. May God help us to walk in love. May God grant repentance for the ways in which we have not walked in love. May God help us to live in love towards him and towards his people for the glory of his name and for the building and advance 
of Christ's eternal kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. O oh God, we are a selfish and loveless people. Forgive our sins. Help us, O oh Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us, O oh Lord, to consider him who bore reproach and suffered because of our sins, that we may not grow weary and lose heart. O oh Lord, forgive our lack of love. Forgive the ways in which we have not prioritized the kingdom priorities that you have, Lord, of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to judge ourselves whether our actions are walking in love. And help us, Lord, to pursue building up the people of Christ for the glory of God. I ask all of this, O oh Lord, so that your name and Christ's glory may be manifest in this church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.